1: At least 38 people from Central and South America died after a fire broke out late Monday at a migrant detention center in the Mexican northern border of Ciudad Juarez. Mexican President Andrés Manuel López Obrador said authorities believed the blaze in the city opposite El Paso, Texas broke out around 9.30 p.m. as some people imprisoned at the center set fire to mattresses in protest after discovering they would be deported. The fire, one of the deadliest migrant tragedies in years, occurred as record levels of migrants attempt to cross the United States through Mexico. Security footage shared on social media shows a flame in part of a cell which is filling up with smoke as men kick desperately on the bars of a locked door. In the 30-second video, three people in official uniforms walk past but make no attempt to open the door. By the end of the video, the smoke is so thick, the cell can no longer be seen. Alejandra Corona, a representative of the Jesuit Refugee Service, which visits the facility once a week to monitor conditions, confirmed the video showed the men's cell. The door the men were kicking on was the only exit, she said. 13 of the dead were Hondurans, according to the country's deputy foreign minister. The Migration Institute said it was also providing assistance to the 15 women who had been safely evacuated from the center when the fire started. Authorities had rounded up migrants off the streets of Ciudad Juarez on Monday and detained them in the center. Activists have frequently flagged concerns of poor conditions and overcrowding in detention centers as migration has risen. Gretchen Kuner, director of the Mexican-based Institute for Women in Migration, which supports migrant rights, said, quote, Last night's events are a horrible example of why organizations have been working to limit or eliminate detention in Mexico. As of 2019, there were 53 INM detention centers operating across Mexico, according to a report from Mexico's Human Rights Commission, with a total official capacity of around 3,000. Bianli Infante, a Venezuelan mother, had been waiting outside the center when the fire started. The 31-year-old told Reuters, quote, I was here since one in the afternoon waiting for the father of my children, and when 10 p.m. rolled around, smoke started coming out from everywhere. Her husband, 27-year-old Edward Caraballo, was detained on monday by mexican migration authorities and put in a holding cell inside the facility he managed to survive by dousing himself in water and pressing against the door as the fire blazed he is now in the hospital the couple and their three children left venezuela last october in search of better economic opportunities a good education for their kids and to escape violence by late december they had reached the u.s border and crossed into eagle pass texas where they handed themselves over to u.s migration authorities but they were immediately returned to Mexico, where they then headed by bus to Ciudad Juarez. Recent weeks have seen a buildup of migrants in Mexican border cities, as authorities attempt to process asylum requests using a new U.S. government app known as CBP1. The process is taking too long. Earlier this month, clashes occurred between U.S. security and hundreds of mostly Venezuelan migrants at the border after frustration welled up about securing asylum appointments. Mexico's migration law says migrants can only be detained for 15 days under normal circumstances, though the Supreme Court in March ruled that such lengths were unconstitutional and that migrants should be held no longer than 36 hours. In January, the Biden administration said it would expand Trump-era restrictions to rapidly expel Cuban, Nicaraguan, and Haitian migrants caught crossing the U.S.-Mexico border in an effort to contain the border flows. That came after a decision in October to expand expulsions under a controversial policy known as Title 42 to Venezuelans. At the same time, the United States said it would allow up to 30,000 people from those countries to enter the country by air each month.
0: This week, we continue sharing a panel hosted by Haymarket Books on the abolitionist struggle to stop Cop City. In this section, we hear Hugh Farrell in conversation with Sarah Haley, a leading historian of black feminism in the South, as well as organizer Kwame Olafemi of Community Movement Builders and journalist Micah Herskin. Haley roots contemporary resistance to Cop City within a longer black abolitionist trajectory, while Olafemi and Herskin walk us through the current state of repression and momentum in the Stop Cop City Movement. Here they are.
2: I wanted to say that it's just extremely helpful to hear some of this recent abolitionist genealogy and the sort of strategic direction of abolitionist work in Atlanta, you know, over the past 15 years. But I wanted to go back to Sarah and ask if you could fill in some of the broader abolitionist genealogies that the movement to stop cop city fits within and particularly in the South.
3: Yeah, I can speak a little bit, and I'll try and be very quick, to Georgia in particular, which I think has a rich and lesser acknowledged abolitionist history that goes back again to the 19th century, that period of convict leasing and the chain gangs in which there was formal organizing, collective organizing against, in particular, convict leasing to end that system. Everyone from black women's organizations to unions. Unions. We might think about that tradition as you know we hopefully mobilize against the carceral state today. Um, that is a long one, but also a more recent history in the 1970s. That period of contingency where um, there was a question: Would the carceral state be built? Um, and be built to the degree that it is today. Um, not only were you know imprisoned organizers organizing the left and Black radicals um, organizing around the question of. Um, you know, an abolitionist question of what a social world would look like, but there were specifically moratorium prison moratorium movements in Georgia in the 19th century in the 1970s that were confronting directly confronting this language. Um, that Stewart really um, elaborated around police training and in particular diversification so Jimmy Carter had um, a diversification program that he actually called operation catch up to uh, recruit Black um, police officers and women. And in the face of that, um, there was a a moratorium project that I think is just very important for us to think about how can the history of prison moratoriums and movements to stop prisons from being built um, be mobilized around um, these police training centers and in particular, the work of organizations like the Californians United for a Responsible Budget, which has um, really joined uh, environmentalists and abolitionists together to think about very strategic modes of challenging kind of um, challenging environmental um, um, restrictions right around the building of, of prisons, and successfully stopped. Um, se- several prisons in California. So that kind of moratorium history, I think, is a history that we need to think about um, together with that longer history of anarchist black radical traditions tradition that could come under the umbrella of what Clyde Woods called a blues epistemology. And in fact, the blues discussed this and it's relevant to the forest's um, movement um because this is a contestation of the history of being hunted um the history of fugitivity where escaped prisoners would use the forests, would use any means that they could um and so this it um it shines a light on both the history of hunting like carceral hunting in the south um of people um, and the forest movements but also an everyday radical anarchist tradition throwing rocks at Capitol, which um, girls in Georgia did at the turn of the 20th century, or in 1901, I believe, burning down a section of the state prison in Georgia, right? So we, um, it's easy to demonize um, so-called like anarchist modes of rebellion, of fighting back, of physical confrontation while glorifying them in the past, but they are of the same tradition. 11-year-old Black girls resisted their um, captivity by throwing rocks and trying to um, escape from from prison. And so we need to be thinking about that as part of this longer history of of forest defense. Um, And I would also point to the history of abolitionist feminism, which has really confronted the the, um, forms of policing that are... Um, less shock and awe, that are often more invisible, that are often domestic policing, which clearly this is a plan to perfect the policing in interior and exterior spaces, as I mentioned before. Um, so I would just shout um, the work of Beth Ritchie and Emily Thuma and Elisa Bieria on the kinds of ranges of analyses of what policing means. like what policing does in society, but also the dynamic and complex forms of confrontation. Um, And the last thing I'll throw out, because I think it's relevant to this question of space and acreage in the South, is um, this, I think, a really important movement against the um, kind of genocidal appropriation of spaces of Black torment and death in particular spaces in which black imprisoned black people have died, convict laborers have died, Sugar Land, Texas, um, Chastain, the Atlanta arts complex um, used to be both, uh, which, so Chastain Park is the major arts complex in Atlanta, um, used to be an almshouse for the poor and also a women's convict camp. When they found bones of um, prisoners and or poor indigent people um, at the golf course, that's part of the Chastain Arts Complex, they simply marked them with orange tags and proceeded to allow the golfing to continue over the bones of um, dead prisoners, right? And so we need to think about the the magnitude of violation, cultural, physical, um, and social um, violation, but also these movements to change that. So there are movements to really um, fight for um, these spaces, right? Fight for lands, both the forest as the lungs of Georgia, but also these places um, that we might think about um, in terms of public memory and also the kinds of radical mutual of, um, relations and social relations that Kwame is building in Georgia
2: too. Thank you. And I just really think that that both establishes those longer abolitionist histories, but also then just the incredible stakes, uh, for the movement that's underway in Atlanta and, you know, in it's sort of whole range, uh, including, uh, the history of militant struggle in the South. And just in terms of understanding what's going on, uh, with this project, you know, and thinking about the sort of political context for why it's being forced through, despite the entire range of, you know, popular, electoral, militant uh, struggle that's happening. Uh, I want to go back to Kwame and uh, ask you sort of about the city of Atlanta and its political establishment. Uh and so Atlanta is known to many as the Black Mecca, and there's a solid Black middle class. The city is run by Black mayors, Black city council people, Black police, etc. With such Black political and to some extent economic influence, how is something as destructive as Cop City being built there? Uh, and I also just want to say that in thinking about the current uh, moment in Atlanta, I would also just love an update from you Kwame or from Micah or anyone else about the repression as well as what the sort of state of the momentum of the movement is uh, coming out of this mass week of action that just uh, ended.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm going to answer that first part of that question in a little bit of a historical context as well. Um, I know we're talking about a lot of history on (laughs) on this webinar, but uh, it's important, right? It's important to be able to contextualize where we are right now. Um, and so I think that it's important to recognize also, and I, and I was low-key, I was smiling a lot when uh, Micah was going through the history and the timeline of Atlanta because so many different pieces of what Micah was saying was also, uh, I was also going to be incorporating a little bit into this answer as well, but you did the better job, and I probably would have, so thank you for doing that. <laughs> um, but uh, I think something that's extremely important, I know Micah Talked a little bit at the earlier on about uh, how this kind of trajectory that we're in right now really starts a lot earlier. Like, and I also think it's important to think about that in the same context when you think about how the black misleadership class has kind of formulated in the city of Atlanta in particular. And so, um, and so specifically, what I mean is that in the in the 60s you know, we had the civil rights movement, we had the civil rights era, Atlanta was not touched in the same, as a city was not touched in the same way as the other larger, uh, or not even larger, larger or smaller other cities in the South by the civil rights movement and in and, and the same types of ways. And a lot of that was because an agreement that took place that stands even today of the, um, the white economic elite, and the black and the uh, you know black petty bourgeois class of that time as well, right? So specifically, what I'm talking about is um, you know the black political elite that was take, that happened there was an agreement that was formed that basically like the white economic elite in Atlanta was basically like, you know what, y'all can you know have the politics, use that representation to be able to quell the masses as long as we are able to keep our pockets you know lined. By the, and that the decisions that you all make doesn't disrupt our income flow, right? And I think it's important to recognize the, that type of agreement that took place in Atlanta in particular back then, looking at a larger, you know, bird's eye view of the international, internationally what was going on of neocolonialism on the African continent, right? And in other places as well, right? We, we saw in South Africa, we saw in um, Ghana, uh, we saw how... There was models of economic of there was revolutions that was taking place all throughout the continent around that same time period, but uh, which were able to have political control over the uh, various countries. But the economics was still very much so uh, owned and controlled by white investors and that were external to the uh, particular country. And that same model is what you can see here in Atlanta, which is why. You know, we have our ideology about being a colon, uh, black folks being a colonized entity with a nation within the United States. And this is and Atlanta is a perfect example of, of that kind of framework that, we're, that we put into context here. And so when you look at it in, in that way, right, uh, Micah mentioned how Cop City is really the birth child of the Atlanta Police Foundation. And the Atlanta Police Foundation is made up of all of the Fortune 500, all of the large corporations that make up the city of Atlanta um, and also have an extremely large chokehold, essentially, over locally elected politicians within the city council. And, um, and so basically you are not able to, stay, uh, to become elected or stay elected in the, in, in the city of Atlanta if you don't have the backing of the Atlanta Police Foundation. And if by mass resistance, like we saw in 2020, I think that people will think, well, you had mass resistance, you had a huge turnout that came out in 2021 um, for the mayoral elections that took place right after 2020. And there was a a slew of folks that were uh, campaigning as the progressive candidate, right, the progressive, um, you know, pro-Black Lives Matter Um, anti-cop city even, um, you know, candidates that were running at that time, right, and got elected. Some got got elected, right, and speaking speaking specifically about Antonio Lewis. Um, Antonio Lewis, who is the District 12 city council person, that's my district, um, and also the district, if you remember from when I was speaking a little bit earlier, of Joyce Shepard, who uh, thwarted the attempts of building the Rayshard Brooks Peace Center, who then um, brought the ordinance Uh, of cop city she was actually elected out right she was voted out in 2021 again because like we've all been saying the the masses of people here in atlanta don't want cop city she was attached to cop city um and so she was voted out antonio lewis when he was on the campaign trail um was recording videos of himself talking about how he was Completely against Cop City, how uh, Cop City was bad for our community. How we're trying to, how they're trying to organize and be able to break down how to be able to, you know, um, you know, essentially not have Cop City or make it worse or make it not as bad as it will be, um, and try to incrementally stop it. Right. So, um, and not to mention Antonio Lewis when he was running, um, you know, he somehow was friends with literally every black person that was murdered by the police. <laughs> um, it was. Actually, kind of disgusting how he kind of tried to t- what weave his narrative. And again, because he's my city council district's person, right? Uh, District 12 city council representative. I remember distinctly, right? Uh, just a few months after he was elected into the new year of 2020, 2022, I remember going to one of our neighborhood association meetings, and this is these are like the uh, neighborhood level. Meetings where this, which is gives some kind of voice for the neighborhood folks to be able to have insight into politics um, that are going on in the city. Antonio Lewis came to the to that uh, event. When I've had conversations with him even before when he was running, etc., talking about how much he was against Cop City with his staff talking about how much they were against Cop City. And the first thing he says in that neighborhood association meeting is, "I had a sit down conversation with the Atlanta Police Foundation, and you know they're great guys, <laughs> they're great people." I, I. You know, if my uh, and, you know, just basically touting their praises, recognizing that for, for him to be able to maintain any kind of, uh you know, for him to maintain his political position, he couldn't be as anti-police or anti-police foundation as he had been prior because, again, the influence that the Atlanta Police Foundation has over um, our electoral processes, and when I say the Atlanta Police Foundation, again, that's a euphemism for the uh, capitalist class that runs at the city of Atlanta. And so, uh, the whole idea that I'm trying to, you know, kind of bring out of this is that our uh, leadership, while we, do, while Atlanta does have, you know, the political, the um, you know, a, a black middle class. It does have, um, you know, black mayors, black city council people, black police, uh, black police officers, black police and leadership. All those different types of things that uh, liberals like to say is going to be what, you know, fixes things for black folks. Um, it also, at the same time, is very much so owned and controlled by white economic elites, and that kind of control has the impact of being able to uh, dictate what policies are being, uh, what folks can put forward as policies, et cetera. And I think it's also important to mention that while we have the, um, you know, there is a black middle class here in Atlanta that a lot of people talk about with the black mecca. Atlanta is also the, uh, you know, has the widest income inequality, wealth, um, income gap, or wealth gap, I should say, of any city in the country, right? A lot of people don't recognize that, but that's because of those same types of, you know, uh, policies that are, you know to be able to uh you know be able to tout have like the be able to tout all this economic progress for black folks but the vast majority of us are you know left without um and so the only other thing i wanted to uh mention is again um i, I think with when we're talking about th- this project with cop city being essentially uh, what I consider a neo colonial project to be able to subjugate the black masses and to be able to, for the benefit of the capitalist class. I think what Micah mentioned before was also extremely important, which I was going to mention here too, is that again, it's a project to be able that is really also born out of the necessity that the Atlanta City Council feels needs to take place to be able to keep Buckhead in the city, right? White, wealthy Buckhead in the city um, to be able to keep the black masses who are struggling in check to make them feel more comfortable right it's also a project where it's um police are being trained again not just atlanta police department are going to be trained here in the city it's also not it's not also not just the um Georgia police that are going to be trained, that would be trained in this facility for it to be built. It's also, um, I think the statistic was 47 percent of the police officers being trained in the facility would uh, be out from outside the state of Georgia. Now, the now that's significant for, significant for two reasons. One, because it, you know, nationalizes and even internationalizes our struggle. But two, um, because, um, you know, we talk about uh, Tyree Nichols murder in uh Memphis. The police chief that of in, in Memphis was um you know, a daughter of the Atlanta police uh Atlanta Police Department who actually uh you know was on, in charge of what was our extremely militarized, extremely brutal um, police uh initiative called the Red Dog Unit here in Atlanta that was known for be for uh you know extreme tactics and was disbanded some years ago because of the extreme tactics that were used. They then, that, that person then went to become the police chief in Memphis who started the Scorpion Unit, which is the exact same thing, but in Mem- Memphis's version of it, which is what was responsible for killing Tyree Nichols. So the same kind of uh, police tactics that are here, here used in Atlanta are exported across the country and even internationally through uh, a program called the GILLEE program, G-I-L-E-E, um, where the um, at, where Atlanta Police Department cross trains with the Israeli police and the Israeli military the same to be able to sh- uh, exchange tactics for the same tactics that uh, the APD uses to brutalize black people here in Atlanta, are the same tactics that they are training uh, the Israeli police to be able to use against Palestinians in the genocide that's going on over there, and vice versa. The same tactics that are being used Against the Palestinians are also being exported back to Atlanta, Georgia, um, to um, brutalize Black folks here in community. And so it's extremely important to be able to connect these ties and recognize that if Cop City were to be built, not only not only will they be exchanging those tactics, they'll be also have a playground to practice those tactics on in an even more depth way.
5: Um, Okay, sure. Yeah, I'll I'll pick up from there um, on on sort of the the other question you asked regarding sort of where things stand. so, you know, just just to give an overview. So, this past week was the fifth week of action um, that that the movement has, you know, has had. Um, this has been going on, you know, as we've said for years at this point. And this was the fifth week of action. Um, you know, organizers here, People came in from all over the country, as was you know asked for for support. Um, you know, for, from folks on the ground, um, and it was a really beautiful week. Um, and it was also a really you know a week that was full of police repression and police violence and so i'll hit the second i'll hit the 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 violence first and you know end on the beauty um but on a on a at a festival a music festival um last sunday um that was hosted it was it was a music festival in the wilani forest also known as the south river forest um and you know there were hundreds of people there over the course of both saturday and sunday Families with children. There was a bouncy house that kids were playing in. Um, it was just this sort of really beautiful event with tons of different artists. Um, a mile away on Sunday night, there was an action um, in which some folks engaged essentially in sabotage of machinery um, that would be used to create, um, you know, to, to destroy the forest and to build Cop City. And police descended. Not actually on the site where um, you know where this action occurred, but at the music festival, about a mile away from where the action occurred, um, they detained about 35 people is the estimate, um, and ended up arresting 23 people. Um, all of those 23 people were charged with domestic terrorism. Um, it brings our, our total of folks charged with domestic terrorism up to 42 people. So through police raids, you know, over the past couple months, police have raided the forest. Police have raided or you know attacked protests. They've arrested people and charged them with this 2017 domestic terrorism statute, um, which really represents you know a very serious um, and severe escalation of sort of police tactics in response to social movement.
0: We'll have the other segments of this panel on our website, or you can check out Haymarket Press's YouTube channel to watch online. You can find out more at defendtheforest.org. This has been KiteLine. Please reach out if you have a news item we should cover, if you want to volunteer, or just to tell your story. Email us at KiteLine Or send us a letter at KiteLine, care of WFHB, 108 West 4th Street, Bloomington, Indiana, 47404. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.